0: (laughs) Dr. Justin Butler that was the plan I was going to be Dr. Justin Butler and matter of fact that had been the plan for so long that I could actually picture it in my head as if it were a reality I could picture walking across campus and students seeing me and saying hey Dr. Butler or what's up Dr. Butler I could picture my office door you know having a sign on it that said Justin Butler PhD. I could picture looking in books or journals or online articles and seeing my name listed among experts in my particular field of study. Now for those of you who are not aware I spent the majority of my undergraduate education training to become a history professor. I loved history still very much do love history and Matter of fact, I loved it so much, I wanted to devote my life to it, and what better way to devote your life to an academic field like that than to go for the gold. You know, I mean, go for the PhD, the highest degree obtainable in that field, and then become a professor, and that was the plan, and I'd prayed about it. I'd planned for it, and academically speaking, I prepared prayer Planning and preparation, the three big P's of big decision making, that's what I was doing. And I was doing it often. And you know what, Sarah was as well. See, because Sarah and I were in the early stages of our engagement at the time, and she knew the plans, she knew what I wanted to do, and she knew just like me the sacrifices we were going to have to make. I'm not sure how aware you are about postgraduate education, but in the United States, typically, A Ph.D. degree takes five to seven years after a master's degree. Now, again, this depends on the school and the program that you're going into, but for me, a Ph.D. in history, it was indeed going to take five to seven years after a master's, except mine also required me to live six months to a year in Paris, France. So there was a lot of sacrifices that needed to be made. But you see, we never stopped praying, we never stopped planning, and we never stopped preparing. Now, I should probably point out my particular historical field here because it's a key part of the story. Everybody specializes. You know, if you're getting into the Ph.D. stage, everyone's specializing because a Ph.D. degree is so specific. And my particular historical field was early modern France. Okay, specifically French Revolution, Age of Napoleon. If you see my office, I've got a huge portrait of Napoleon hanging on the wall. I just loved everything about it and so wanted to get to know that better. And as you can imagine, I probably don't need to explain to you that the number of graduate schools that offer a master's and PhD in early modern French history is really limited. Matter of fact, you can probably count them on one hand, and I'd applied to every single one of them. Matter of fact, I applied to one in Europe. I applied to every single school, did graduate interviews, wrote more entrance essays than I dare even to admit. I mean, and, this, and we just never stopped planning for this. But here's the thing, if you've ever applied to graduate school or you know someone who has, you always have a list of schools that that you're looking at, but there's always that one that stands out head and shoulders above the rest. There's always the one. Whether you're genuinely going to apply to it or not, there's always that one. And for me, that was Florida State University. Now, Florida State has an incredible history program. Okay, I mean, they've got degrees in fields you've heard of and some that you've not. I mean, but not only... Did they offer a master's and Ph.D. in my particular field of study? They house on campus the Napoleonic Institute of Research. And oh man, I mean, that was the dream. To get your master's and your Ph.D. from the Napoleonic Institute. I mean, it was, it was an absolute dream to go there. Every bit of Napoleonic history in the United States was coming out of that institute. And I read everything that came out of there. And, but it was going to stay a dream. You know, because while I, I longed to go there, it was just going to be up on the shelf as something nice to look at. Because that particular institute required some heavy prerequisites, not all of which were available at my undergraduate institution. So after I graduated from four years of undergrad, I would have to go to another university to take two classes just to apply to this place. No, it was, it was nice. It was a dream, but it was just going to sit up there. But we never stopped praying. We never stopped planning. We never stopped preparing. And you know what? For a while, it seemed like that's what God really wanted us to do. I mean, our prayer was simple. Okay, it was this. God, if this is what you want us to do, then open doors. If you want us to do something else, then close doors. Amen. I mean, it was that simple. Prayed it often, and that was the prayer. And for a while, like I said, it seemed like that's what God really wanted us to do. Doors were flying open for me in the way of grades. Academics were good. There were leadership opportunities. There were internship opportunities, opportunities to present research at conferences, all of which are really important things for a history graduate program. Those are things they like to see. But i got to tell you, the biggest door flew open one day when I was sitting in the library at KCU. I'll never forget. I was sitting there, and I had my laptop, and I had my phone sitting right here. And I got a phone call from a number I didn't recognize. And because I was in the library and it was nice outside, I thought I'd be courteous to take the phone call outside. So I took the phone call outside and uh, picked the phone and said, hello? And it was the director of the Napoleonic Institute. He told me his name, and of course I knew his name. Like I said, I, I, knew every, I read everything that came out of that institute. Of course I knew who he was. He says, Justin, this is Professor. And he gave his name. And I was like, yeah, right, sure. Sure, I mean, the director of the Napoleonic Institute has called me personally. I really was skeptical, I was, because I didn't even think to apply to that place, and now he's called me? I mean, yeah, sure it is. You know, I have a lot of history friends, and I was like, okay, somebody's messing with me. And then he proceeded to tell me things only he would know about his institute, about his research. He also then proceeded to tell me things only he would know about my academic background, I didn't know at the time, I found out later that a professor friend of mine had submitted some of my writings to this institute and the conversation, we were on the phone for an hour and a half so I mean I had a lots, of, lots of things I would like to talk about with him but um, the beginning of the conversation went like this, he said, Justin, I've read some of your work, I like the way you write, I like the way you think about this stuff. He said, I've got seven students, you want to be number eight? And I'm like, oh, you could have pushed me over it with a finger. I mean, this is. Just, I was like, are you serious? Like, God, this really is what you want me to do. My plans and your plan, I mean, the, everything's lining up. He went on. He said, Justin, we've got this fellowship here at the university. and With your background, we think, we think you could get it. What that means is they would be paying me to go to school there instead of the other way around. Full tuition and books, living stipend housing, and I'd be getting paid to be a teaching assistant teaching some of the undergraduate courses as I got my degree at Florida State. And the drool is just flowing right now. I mean, it's just crazy. I'm like, are you serious? And I mean, I'm I'm not even sure I was speaking English to him. I mean, I was just so excited about this. You know, and I'll never forget the conversation ended like this. He said, I said, professor, I just want you to know that your institute is number one on my list, and there was about a three to five second pause, which felt like three to five years, if I'm honest with you, you know. And he simply said, "Good." And he hung up, and I sprinted back up to my grandparents' house. I was living with them at the time they live across the street from campus, so I was living with them, and they knew my plan, and I immediately ran uh, sprinted back at, "Mama, Papa, guess what? I called Sarah again, not sure if I was speaking English or not, but I, you know, I was keeping her up to date on everything, and I was like, you know what, so I applied. I was just so excited, I applied immediately. Sent my application, entrance essay, a sample of my writing, three references, medical and federal background checks, transcripts, and I waited. I don't know if you've ever applied to grad school, but it's basically hurry up and Wait. You know, it's like we need everything in by this particular date, and then you just wait forever. And I waited for four months to hear back. Checked my email multiple times a day. Checked my voicemail multiple times a day. I just, I was so excited. And I waited. And I waited. And I waited. And then one day I got a letter in the mail. I'll never forget it. It had a big wax red stamp. It said Napoleonic Institute of Research. I took it into my grandparents' room. I sat down on the end of the bed, I opened it, and I did not get in. Now, I probably don't need to explain to you, I couldn't think straight because of the confusion and, and the disappointment. I mean, I, I'd worked forever for this. I didn't know what I needed to do, but I knew I needed to pray. Whenever you don't know what to do, prayer is the best option. So I knew I needed to pray. And I will be honest with you, I was burning on the inside. I was. I was upset. And my prayers went something like this. God, I prayed for this. Not that you would admit me, but I prayed to seek your will on this. I worked for four years for this. Four years. One of my degrees was put towards this. I had plans, God. I had plans. Why did you do this to me? Now, you see, we all might not be able to relate specifically to this story, but there are two things that tie us all together through my story here. There's two things that make us all united on this. Number one, and this is going to be obvious, but number one is we all make plans. I mean, it just makes sense. We, everybody makes plans, old, young, rich, poor, Christian or non-Christian. Every single person makes plans, especially this time of the year. This time of the year, everybody's making plans. We start a new year tomorrow. And everyone's planning. I'll tell you who else makes plans. Those high school seniors or college seniors, and you ask them what their plans are, and they're like, I don't know. You know, I was that person at one point. You ask them, what if they're theological enough, they're going to be like, I'm just trusting God and soldiering on, you know. (laughs) But that's the thing, is you ask them, and they're like, I don't have any idea. I don't even think that far ahead. They also make plans. If they tell you they don't, I'm going to tell you they're not telling you the truth. And here's how I know that. I know a particular pastor. I know of him. I've never met him. And he plays this game with his college students. It's called twice your age. It's very simple. You got someone, okay, well, you're 20. Okay, well, now you're 40. And then you just start asking them basic life questions. And you would be amazed at how specific people who say they don't have plans, plans are. So it's like they're 20. Oh, I don't know. I, don't know, I haven't thought that far ahead. I'm just taking it day by day, you know, driving the wave of life. <laughs> and then you say, okay, well, you're 20. Well, now you're 40. You married? Yes. Got kids? Yes. Three. The oldest one's 17, plays soccer. He likes girls with quirky personalities. I live in this neighborhood with this house, with this kind of mortgage. I have this kind of job. I have this type of insurance plan. And it's crazy. Everybody makes plans. That's number one. And number two, and admittedly less fun to talk about, is while everyone makes plans, sometimes, sometimes God shoots down those plans. Now I want to make something very clear to you. I don't say sometimes God shoots down those plans because I want you to be scared of him. I don't say sometimes God shoots down those plans because I want you to be angry at him or I want you to think I'm angry at him. I don't want you to question his goodness. I don't want you to question his powerful nature. I simply mean this. Sometimes God shoots down our plan because sometimes, sometimes more than once, our plan for our life does not match up with God's plan for our life that's what I'm talking about and as Christians we got to understand how do I deal with this because I'm not going to stand up here and tell you it's easy I'm not going to I'm also not going to stand up here and tell you it's not scary because it is scary especially when you read in Proverbs 16 that the Lord determines man's steps it is scary and as Christians we got to understand how do I mentally and spiritually prepare myself for when God changes my plans because i got to tell you, I know some people who have a rocky relationship with God, and it is because they prayed specific plans, and they didn't work out. And they're like, well, these things didn't work out. Maybe, maybe this whole God thing's not cut out for me. So we have to understand, what, how do I deal with this? How do I process it? And in this time, when everyone's making plans for next year, some of those plans are going to change, I'm just going to tell you. We have to understand why. We have to understand how we respond to it. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Chronicles 17. If you want to open there. That's the only place we're going to be. And we're going to be talking about a guy named David. Let me fill you in on some background before we get into this text. Okay. David, at this point, is king of Israel. I bring that up because we read just a little bit prior where he's not. Okay. So now he's king He's King David, and things in Israel are good. Now, I stress that because you can read the New Testament for 10 seconds and realize that rarely were things all good with the nation of Israel. But things are good, and here's what I mean by that. wasn't any war. There wasn't any famine. wasn't political upheaval. Things were spiritually strong. Israel is united because they're going to split later on. At this point, Israel's united, and because things are good, David thinks this is time to advance. Not militarily, but this is a time to build. We've got the money, we've got the manpower, everything is stable, let's build. And think about it. From a political standpoint, it just makes sense. If you've got the time and you've got the money, yes, build. Now what does he want to build? He wants to build a place of worship. And you say, didn't they have a place of worship? Yes, indeed they did. They had the tabernacle. And here's what you've got to understand. The tabernacle, while it is a place of worship was a tent. Okay, it's meant to be moved from place to place. It's a mobile place of worship. What they did not have was a permanent, in one place, brick and mortar place of worship. didn't exist yet. And David wanted to be the one to build it. Why? Because David wants to give back. David started as a shepherd. The youngest of eight sons of a man named Jesse and was chosen by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And David never forgot God's faithfulness in all these little areas of his life and where he took him from being a shepherd to being a warrior to being a king. Can David give back 100% of what God has given him? Of course not, and he knew that. But if he could build a place of worship worthy of, of housing the Ark of the Covenant, we'll hear about that in a second. And that's what David wanted to do. That's what he wanted to do. Read with me here. First Chronicles 17, one and 2. It says, After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. You see, David was a man after God's own heart. And what that meant is that he always had the concerns of the Lord on his mind. He's always got the concerns of the Lord on his mind. And so David realizes, hey, you know what? I've just built this elaborate palace made of cedar. Cedar at the time is not native to the region. It's incredibly luxurious and unbelievably expensive. And David's like, I am sitting in this great palace. But the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the vessel that houses the Ten Commandments, is in a tent in the desert. And David couldn't handle that. This, this vessel is worthy of a palace. People need to be able to have a permanent place of worship. And Nathan, Nathan is a prophet, but you can also think of him as David's chaplain. Okay, because he and David have lots of back and forth conversations. And he says, David, whatever you've got on your heart, whatever's in your mind, man, do it. Do it. God's with you, David. Why would he bring that up? Because obviously God's with him. He's like, there's no war or famine, things are good. Because things are good, David, God's obviously with you. So you do it. And David starts making plans. You got to think, building a temple is not something you just do, right? I mean, it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of manpower and a lot of time. Does David start building it? No, but he starts making plans. And David is excited. Finally, he can give back a little bit. You just read through the Old Testament and you can see how close of a relationship David had with the Lord. And the fact that he can be the one to build this first permanent temple is exciting to him. Now I should point out, David cared much more about the spiritual aspect of having a place of worship than just being the first one to build it. He knew that a place of worship was necessary. It wasn't that he would be the first. It's just they needed to have one. And David's so excited. And wouldn't you be? If you were in David's shoes and no such place of worship existed on a permanent level and you got to be the one to build it, wouldn't you be excited? Especially knowing what you could give back to God. David is making heavy plans. But you see, God's got different plans for David. Read with me here. Three and four. It says, but that night... The word of God came to Nathan saying go and tell my servant David this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. Can you imagine what David must have felt? First of all on a side note I wouldn't want to have to be Nathan telling David that. But can you imagine what David must have been feeling? David's made these plans. He's excited about these plans. And God says David buddy. It's not that the temple's not going to get built. I mean, that's going to happen. But it's not going to be you or under you. Can you imagine what went through David's mind? God, am I not good enough? Is it too much building? Is it too expensive? Am I unqualified for this? And it was none of those things. It was none of those things. God didn't say, David, it's not going to be you because this is too much for you. You can't handle this. He didn't say, Wow, that's a lot of building, David. You might want to save that for somebody else. It's going to be a headache. It's not what he's saying. David, certainly not unqualified. And it's not a bad plan. He's also not allowing David to do it because it's a bad plan. He says, David, your plan's too small, brother. Your plan's too small, David. You want to build me a house, that's great, but I've got something better for you. And that's what we need to understand here. When God changes your plans, it's not because he's bored and he likes to see you upset. It's not because you're succeeding and he's going to stick his foot out and trip you just when things are good. It's because he has something better for you always. And he's got something better for David. Listen, I never imagined I'd be a pastor. Never thought of it. I grew up in it. I grew up in the church, have have multiple family members that either were or still are in the ministry. But I never thought I'd be doing that. I wanted to be a professor. Let me tell you what happened. Around that same time that I got denied from Florida State, I started preaching at a little church in Vanceburg that had a total of 12 people. Little tiny church. I was filling in for my history professor. As a matter of fact, he was the senior minister there and he traveled all over the world all the time. And when he was gone, I would fill in. I loved it. Got to teach Sunday school and preach a sermon. And it was just great. And I like doing it like three or four times a year. But I never thought I'd do that. I said earlier, one of my degrees is in history. The other one is in biblical studies. And around that time, I started praying, planning, and preparing in terms of ministry, it was like, yes, Lord, obviously this is what you want me to do. Because not long after Vanceburg, I got called to a little church in Grayson to be their youth minister. I was there for a year, and then God called me here as an associate. And there is not a thing I would ever do to change any part of God's plan for me. Yeah, he changed it majorly. I thought I was headed to Florida State, I was going to be a professor, I was going to be Dr. Butler, I was going to be a teacher. And God says, Justin, you're going, to teach, you're going to teach people about me. And I had that same mentality I had with the professor. I was like, are you serious? You want You want me to teach people about you? And God said yes. And now I realize, Lord, I will never have that little faith ever again. Because there is nothing I would change at all about what I've been doing. You see, God always has something much better in plan for you when he changes things. And he had something better in mind for David. Look with me here, starting in verse 7. This is still God talking to Nathan, telling Nathan to say things to David. Verse 7. says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, From tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of all the greatest men on the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home for their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. And here it is. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Do you see how things changed for David? David wanted to build God a house, a temple. And God says, no, David. David too small. I want to use you for something bigger. I want to build you a house. See, here's the thing. As a king, you want to make sure that those who come after you are successful. And so you say, well, God's not using David. He's using David's son. Isn't that kind of a raw deal? No, 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 no. Listen. David will eventually have a son, and that son's name is Solomon. Solomon will become a great king, one of the wisest people to ever live and in 966 B.C. Solomon builds the temple but you see God wasn't done there it wasn't enough see that was that was probably be good enough for David wow my son is going to build the temple to the Lord that's great God's not finished there he's not finished you see because after Solomon came another son and another son and generation after generation after generation probably a thousand years later A little baby is born in Bethlehem. His name is Jesus. You see, the prophecy said that the Messiah would come from the family line of David. So he says, David, you want to build me a house? No, no, no. I want to make you part of the lineage of the Messiah. That's what I've got for you, David. I want to build you a house. I want to make your name great, David. I know you've got plans. But I've got plans. I've got plans for you. And they're better than anything you could possibly imagine. Because David probably didn't see that coming at all. Probably had no idea that was coming. You want to build me a house, David? No, I want to build you a home. I want to build you into my family, David. I know what you wanted. But I've got bigger things for you. And God always has bigger things for us as well. And you say, okay. Okay, Justin, maybe that makes a little bit of sense. But what what, what do I do about it? Like I understand, you know, God always has something better in mind. I, I understand that, you know, God does change our plans, but He's always got a method to it. It's not for no reason. How do I prepare myself for that? What's something tangible I can do? I've got a list of things you can do, and they're in no order of importance. First of all, is listen. Just listen. Prayer is an obvious part of this. Matter of fact, it's so obvious, I didn't put it make it part of the list. Pray often. First Thessalonians says to pray without ceasing. Pray and don't stop praying. You're not going to get on God's nerves. You're not going to overwhelm God. Pray often. But also take time to just sit and listen. I hope you're having a quiet time every day. And by that I mean you're taking this book Maybe you've got a physical copy. Maybe you've got it on your phone. And for 30 or 45 minutes, you're just spending time with God, reading His Word and in prayer. But also take time to just sit and listen. Why? Like I said, you're not going to overwhelm God. You're not going to get on His nerves. But sometimes we're the ones doing all the talking. God, I want to land on my feet by this time, by this age, making this much money, be married by this time, having this many kids, and your prayers become negotiations like a free agent. We end up treating God like a vending machine. I'm guilty of it. God, you know, I'll, I'll trust you, but let's, let's get these things nailed down first. You know, and then we'll see how it goes. And we do all the talking. We don't take time to just sit and listen. Because, listen, God does speak back. The number one way he speaks to you is through his word right here. It's the number one way. But so often we don't take time to just sit and Listen. However you do that, if you want to take time to listen just by continuing to read, if you just want to sit in silence for a few minutes, but don't neglect the listening aspect to God's plan. Because it's a huge part. Pray and make sure to not forget to take time to listen. Number two, understand we can only see the lower story. What does that mean? There are two schools of thought in Christianity. I didn't come up with them. It was told to me by my pastor. There's the upper story, That's where God is, okay? And there's the lower story. That's where we are, okay? Now, the unfortunate thing about being human is we can only see the lower story. That is, when plans change and we think things are wrong, we can only see what's going on around us. When I got denied from Florida State, I was like, well, this is just terrible. I'm gonna have to go back to school. I worked for four years for nothing, I mean, my life is over, and that's dramatic, but that's what I was thinking. Because I could only see what was in front of me. We can only see the lower story. Here's the great thing, though. One of the beautiful things about God, of the billion things that are, is that while He can see the lower story because He sees us in our pain, He can also see the upper story. That's where He is. So while we see where we are when our plans change, He sees where we're going to be. Because He can see where things are going. I know without a shadow of a doubt that he knew I was going to be a pastor the minute I got denied from Florida State because he sees the upper story where I'm going to be. I can only see where I, was, where I am. Now listen, understand this about the lower story. When, because we can only see that when things get bad, don't think that's permanent. Don't think that the lower story is all there is. Well, I got denied from Florida State. Well, my life's terrible now. No, no, no. God is always in control. There's always something going on in the upper story. Remember that. We can only see the lower story, but that's not all there is. God's in the upper story. And He can see where you're going to be. Next, humbly submit to God's will. Now that sounds deep, and it is. But it's very simple. Listen to this. There's got to be a point of surrender. There's got to be. There's got to be a point where we stop following our own path because it's not working. I tried this, dead end. I tried this, dead end. There's got to be a point where you realize God is the only one who I can truly follow and who knows what's best for me. I thought I knew what was best for me and it led me to a dead end. I've now surrendered. God, I understand that you know what's best. I'm just going to follow your plan for my life to the best of my ability. There's got to be a point of surrender. There's nothing more humble than saying, I can't do this. God, I can't do this, but I know you can. And You remain humble and you say, Lord, I'm just going to follow you on this. I may not know what's going on, but I'm just going to follow you on this. Listen, that's what David did. David, from his throne, never forgot the pasture where he was a shepherd. He never forgot it. And because he knew God was with him in the pasture and on the battlefield and in the throne room, He knew that God would continue to be with him for whatever he had in store for the future. That's why when God changed David's plan to make him part of the family line of the Messiah, David was like, yes, Lord, absolutely. Absolutely, I'll trust you on this. He humbly submitted to God's will because he remembered where God had taken him. And if you do this in your life, you're like, wow, if God could take me from here to there, then I know he can take me from here to there. And you do that throughout your whole life. Humbly submit to God's will because he knows what's best for you when we don't. Jesus did the same thing. We've talked about this before. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And Jesus' human will was always fully submissive to the will of his Father. Always fully submissive to God. So when he was asked to drink the cup of God's wrath, otherwise known as going to the cross to die for the sins of the world, he did it. He prayed in the garden, not my will but yours, Father. Humbly submit yourself to God's will. God, I can't do this. But you can. My plans aren't working, but I know you've got a plan. I know you can do this, and I'm just going to submit to whatever you have for me, Lord, because odds are it's better than you've ever imagined. I don't know what God's plan for your life is. That's between you and him. I won't even pretend to know, but I can tell you that it's better than anything you can possibly think about. Maybe you've experienced it already, and you know that, but if you haven't, hang on tight. God's got his hand right there. He says, just follow me on this. Follow him, I promise. Remain faithful and obedient. And he will show you his will for your life. Remain faithful. And lastly, understand we all have a specific part in God's plan. You say, I haven't, I haven't found God's will for my life Is what I'm doing meaningless now. Absolutely not. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher with a place specific place in god's plan what is it i don't know but i know that's true you're a mechanic you're a mechanic with a specific place in god's plan nurse accountant doesn't make any difference the role you're playing is specific to god's plan and isn't that amazing of the billions of people god has created a little person like me has a specific and important part in god's plan And so you think, I haven't found God's will for my life now. You know, I'm to this age now. I haven't really found God's will for my life. He must be through with me. No, 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 no. Remain faithful. Remain faithful. Your part is specific and important to His plan. That's your field. That's your field to do the best work for Him right there. So you think, gosh, you know, I'm I'm a nurse. Does that mean... I'm not being used, does that mean I've still got to wait? No, no, you are a nurse with a place in God's plan, specifically. We all have a specific part in God's plan. What you're doing is not meaningless, it's not. Here's the thing though, if God has something else in store for you, if he does, okay, maybe you want to do something else later in life, you feel God calling you to do something else, that's also a specific part in God's plan. doesn't mean you were wrong. It's just you were meant to learn something where you were that's going to help you in where you're going to be. We've all got a specific part, an important part, in God's plan. If we keep these things in mind, we'll understand. When God changes my plans, it's because he's got something better. How soon will you find that out? I don't know. Will He reveal to you immediately what His plan for your life is? Probably not. That's where faith comes in. And here's what I realized long ago. If the creator of the universe has a plan for my life, the perfect and awesome creator of the universe has a plan for me, that's perfectly okay. Because I looked back, and there's a lot of things I'd messed up up to this point. A lot of things I chased I shouldn't have. But you know what? If the creator of the universe has all this planned out, and I'm a part of that plan, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him wherever he takes me, to the best of my absolute ability. We're going to come into this time of communion now. When we come to this time, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus who humbly submitted to the will of his Father and died for the sins of those he so loved. Jesus humbly submitted to the will of God and is now seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. We come into this time to remember that and keep that in mind.